0: Chapter 4 of The Book of Camping and Woodcraft A Guide for Those Who Travel in the Wilderness This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft A Guide for Those Who Travel in the Wilderness by Horace Kephart. Chapter 4 Tents and Tools Tents were invented long before the dawn of history, and they are still used as portable dwellings by men of all races and in all climes, and still the perfect tent has not been invented. Every year sees countless campers busy with new contrivances in canvas or other material, and still the prehistoric patterns hold their own. There is a fascination about tent life that may be partly due to its uncertainties the utmost pinnacle of comfort is reached when one lies at night under taut canvas, with a storm roaring toward him through the forest, and chortles over the blissful certainty that no wind can blow his tent down, and it takes just one second of parting guise and ripping cloth to tumble him off his perch, and cast him headlong into the very depths of woe. A tent should be easy to set up. It should shed heavy rains, and should stand securely in a gale. It should keep out insects and cold draughts, but let in the rays of the campfire and plenty of pure air. It should be cool and airy on summer days, but warm and dry at night. All of which is easily said. For a fixed camp, or any camp that can be reached by wagon, a wall tent is generally preferred. It is easy to set up, and has plenty of headroom. With the addition of a fly, a ground cloth, and a tent stove, it can be made cosy in any kind of weather. But a wall tent, with its necessary poles, is too heavy and bulky for anything but a wagon trip. Men who travel in untracked forests, deserts, or mountains usually require a more portable shelter. A 10 foot by 12 foot wall tent is large enough for a party of four. It should be used only for sleeping quarters and as a shelter for personal kits and other perishables. A separate fly should be taken along to be used as a roof for the dining space and to cover the box or other contrivance that is used for an outdoor cupboard. If there are more than four in the party, take another tent. Two small tents are easier to transport and to pitch than one large one, and they have the supreme advantage that the snorers can then be segregated in a limbo of their own. Guides usually furnish their own shelters, but this should be understood beforehand. It is well to have the tents made to open at both ends, so that they can have a complete circulation of air on hot days. In this case, two tents may be joined together whenever desirable. As for tent materials, the choice depends upon whether it is the intention to go light or not. For fixed camps, 10-ounce double-filling army duck is the thing. The cheap single filling duck is neither strong nor rainproof. Second hand army tents that are in good serviceable condition, having been condemned only for stains or other trifling defects, may be bought very cheaply from dealers who get them at government auctions. These army tents are always well designed and well made. Where expense is not considered and extra weight is not objectionable, no material equals pantasote. It is perfectly waterproof, embers from the campfire will not burn holes in it, it is not sticky in hot weather nor brittle in cold and its wearing qualities are excellent. For a light tent, sail drilling and for a very light one, unbleached sheeting or silk should be used, the material in either case being waterproofed by one or other of the processes mentioned hereafter. Tents of waterproof balloon silk, of excellent quality and strongly made, can now be bought ready-made in all shapes and sizes. A tent of this kind, big enough for one man to bivouac in, is made that weighs only two and a half pounds. A seven and a half by seven and a half miners' tent weighs but six pounds, and an A-tent of the same size only seven and a half pounds. The strength of a tent depends more upon the reinforcement of the grommets and seams than upon the kind of cloth used the lines of greatest strain should be reinforced in light tents by linen tape thin closely woven cotton goods such as sheeting or muslin will shed ordinary rains if pitched at a higher angle than 45 degrees but if set up at a lower angle than this the water will penetrate A long, hard rain will soak such cloth through and through, and even heavy canvas, if not waterproof or protected by a fly, will absorb so much water that if the inside of the cloth be touched by so much as one's finger, a steady drip of water will come through at that spot so long as the rain lasts. A fly not only makes the roof watertight but keeps the tent much cooler on a hot day. When travelling light, a fly cannot be carried. And the tent itself must be light and thin. Consequently, it should be waterproofed. If such treatment is properly applied, it not only renders the tent dry throughout the worst storm, but prevents it from absorbing water, whereas a common tent will take up so much water that its weight is greatly increased. Waterproofing also prevents mildew, and allows one to roll up his tent when it is wet on the outside if he is in a hurry. It is only within a few years that ready-made waterproof tents have been supplied by outfitters. If a common tent is purchased or the camper makes one for himself, he can waterproof it by either of the following processes. Dissolve half a pound of alum in four gallons of boiling rainwater. It is essential that soft water be used. Similarly, in a separate vessel, dissolve half a pound of sugar of lead lead acetate in four gallons of water this is double the proportion of alum usually recommended and better results will follow from it because it ensures the precipitation of all the lead in the form of sulfate let the solution stand until clear then pour the alum liquor into a clean vessel and add the sugar of lead solution let stand a few hours then pour off the clear liquor Thoroughly work the fabric in it so that every part is quite penetrated. Squeeze out, stretch and dry. Remember that sugar of lead is poisonous if taken internally. This treatment fixes acetate of alumina in the fibres of the cloth. The final washing is to cleanse the cloth from the useless white powder of sulphate of lead that is deposited on it. Cloth treated in this matter sheds rain and makes a tent proof against sparks and embers from the campfire. Clothing may also be made rainproof in this way, though still porous, so as to allow perspiration to pass through and evaporate. Rainwater will penetrate it wherever the cloth binds tightly. To waterproof cloth with paraffin, proceed as follows. Cut the paraffin into thin shavings so as to dissolve readily. Dissolve it in turpentine or benzene using as much wax as the liquid will take up. Apply with a varnish brush to the tightly stretched goods. To hasten the solution of the paraffin, place the mixture in a warm room or where the hot sun will strike it, but not, of course, near the fire, and stir it now and then. Or get a cake of paraffin, lay the cloth on a table, and rub the outer side with the wax until it has a good coating, evenly distributed. Then iron the cloth with a medium hot flat iron which melts the wax and runs it into every pore of the cloth. Do not oil a tent. Linseed oil rots the fibre and cloths so treated will be sticky in hot weather. Tents to be used in very cold weather should not be waterproofed because if they are they will become brittle at low temperatures and may break in folding. Moreover, it should be borne in mind that a traveller's greatest discomfort in cold weather is from moisture generated from within and condensing on the inner surface of clothing or tent cloth that is not sufficiently porous to let it escape. Dr. Frederick A. Cook, the Antarctic Explorer, says, A scientifically ideal tent wall would be a double sheeting of some gauzy material, the two thicknesses being separated from each other about one inch this would freely permit the escape of the internal humidity which is always the curse of polar workers while it would sufficiently prevent the penetration of the wind it would perhaps be an excellent idea to have window spaces spread with gauzy or porous material made in the front of this tent near the peak mosquito netting is by no means out of place on the polar ice fields for it is an excellent wind guard retaining the internal heat while easily allowing the escape of moisture. The tent to which he refers is one of his own design, a very light affair to be used in arctic work. It is an advantage to have a tent dyed to a light green or tan colour. This moderates the glare of the sun, makes the tent less attractive to flies, and renders it less conspicuous in the woods, which latter is worth considering in some localities where undesirable visitors may drop in. A few packages of dye may be used before waterproofing. Two pounds of ground white oak bark in three and a half gallons of boiling water will dye canvas a tan colour. Every tent should have a sod cloth, which is a strip about nine inches wide joined to the bottom of the tent on the inside to be held down by small logs, stones or earth. This keeps out draughts, insects and other pests. If the lower edges of the tent are left loose, cold air will be sucked in along the floor and will chill the sleepers. A waterproof ground cloth covering most of the floor of the tent and lapping over the sod cloth is a good thing if it can be carried along. In small tents intended for mountaineering and similar work, this ground cloth is sometimes sewed fast to the bottom of the tent, sod cloths being dispensed with. Such a tent cannot blow away when the weight of the occupants is inside and it has the minor advantage that small articles dropped on the floor will not be lost. But a fixed floor cloth is objectionable in cold weather, especially if water be boiled within the tent, because the steam condenses and runs down the inside of the tent and it should be allowed to run off into the snow along the edges. In fly-time a netting to keep out insects is a prime necessity. The mesh of ordinary mosquito netting is too open and the material is too easily torn and bobinet is likewise too weak the best insect discourager is cheesecloth in summer it is a good plan to have a duplicate tent of cheesecloth hung inside from the ridge or peak then the canvas may be left wide open on sultry nights if a stove is to be used in the tent The pipe hole should be guarded by an asbestos ring or collar which rolls up with the tent. A tin guard is a squeaky thing when the wind blows. Metal tent slides are better than wooden ones, being lighter and not given to swelling, shrinking and splitting. Steel tent pins, twisted somewhat like a lariat pin, are better than wooden pegs as they are more easily driven in rocky ground, hold better and are not so bulky. They should be carried in a bag of their own, or some of them will probably be misplaced or lost. In a wooded region one can depend upon cutting pegs where he camps, but it is better to carry them unless one is going particularly light. Pegs should be at least a foot long. If made of green wood, select hard wood that has no pithy core, and harden the points by slightly charring them in the fire. All tents that are made to close up tightly at night should have ventilators covered with cheesecloth and with flaps on the outside to tie down in bad weather. It is more unhealthful to sleep in a tightly closed tent than in an ordinary bedroom with all the windows closed, for the cubic contents of an average tent are less, the air in it is soon poisoned and the interior is damp besides. Napoleon declared that his troops kept in better health when bivouacking under the stars than when sleeping in tents. It is far better to leave the front of the tent wide open, even in cold weather, than to close it up and sleep in a damp, stuffy atmosphere. The most healthful form of tent, and the one favored by guides, lumbermen, and others who live in the woods, is a lean-to or shed-roof affair with open front, before which a big log fire is kept going all through the night. The heat from the fire is reflected by the tent roof upon the ground below, drying it out and keeping the sleepers warm through the coldest night. This however takes a lot of wood, a good-sized hardwood tree being consumed in a single night, and the labour of chopping is rather severe to anyone but a good axman. But the work is well repaid by the exquisite comfort of lying before the blazing backlogs on a cold night, warm as toast, and breathing deeply the fresh air of the forest. Such a tent is never damp and cheerless, as all closed tents are apt to be. Tent makers always make these shed-roof or baker tents with a door flap sewed to the top to be stretched out forward like an awning when the tent is open. A better plan is to have the door flap separate from the tent and so fitted with grommets or eyelets that it can be attached either to the top or to one side of the tent as preferred. In warm weather, when no all-night fire is needed, it may be hung from the top as an awning, and the tent may be closed up by it when the occupants are away. But on nights when a fire is kept going, the flap should be stretched forward vertically from the windward side of the tent front, so as to check the draught from that direction, and the fire should be built close to the tent, the front of which is left wide open. For a camp that is not shifted every day or two, the shed roof tent is the most comfortable kind of shelter for a timbered region in all kinds of weather. For extreme portability, lightness and ease of pitching, the A-tent is recommended. Nothing is better in the long run for a trip in summer where portages must be made and camp shifted at frequent intervals. In this case no poles are used, A strong tape is sewed along the ridge of the tent, ending in a loop at each end, from which a light rope is extended and stretched between two trees, the rope being made taut by two forked poles bracing it up at each end of the tent and outside of it. Such an arrangement is secure against heavy gales. For a small tent the ridge rope should be about twenty-five feet long. It should be of braided cotton treated to a bath of hot linseed oil and stretched until dry then it will neither shrink, stretch, nor kink. A metal slide or tightener near each end of the rope will keep it taut without crotched poles. The Hudson Bay form of A, or Wedge Tent, economizes cloth and weight by making the ends round and the ridge short. A waterproof silk tent of this pattern, six foot by nine foot by seven foot, weighs only six pounds. A so-called canoe tent, is made that combines some of the advantages of the shed-roof tent with an arrangement whereby it can be set up with only one pole. The protean tent is of similar pattern. The pyramidal miner's tent and the conical sibley require only one pole, and this may be jointed so as to pack easily on an animal or in a canoe. Both of these patterns have so steep a pitch that they shed rain very well, and on this account may be made of thin material. They also stand well in heavy winds when properly pitched, the Sibley especially. The miner's tent, which covers a square ground space, affords more room for beds than a conical tent of equal cubic capacity. Both of these forms are suitable for travel in a treeless region, where a tent pole must be carried. The claim that a Sibley tent can be heated by an open fire inside is not well borne out because the opening at the top is too small to let out the smoke when green wood is burned, as most often be the case. If the tent is to be heated, a regular Sibley tent stove should be carried along. There is only one kind of tent that can be heated by an open fire inside without smoking the occupants out, and that is the Indian Lodge or Teepee, pronounced T P and even it is likely at times to resemble the inside of a chimney flue unless its owners know just how to manage it. However, taking it all around, the teepee is the most comfortable portable home for all regions and for all kinds of weather that human ingenuity has devised. It is more secure in a gale than any other form of tent that does not depend upon neighbouring trees to hold it up. It sheds rain well because its pitch is steep, it can be thrown wide open in a moment or it can be closed tightly all around and still kept well ventilated by the hole at the top. A fire can be kept going within the tent directly under the smoke hole and right in the middle of the enclosed space where it will do the most good. Meals can be cooked over this open fire and the steam and smells will be wafted out through the smoke hole. By manipulating the smoke flaps or wind guards, the chimney may be made to draw in almost any kind of weather. With the tent closed and a trifling smudge of dried fungus going in the centre, mosquitoes can be kept at a respectful distance. There is no centre pole to stumble against, nor guide to trip over. The tent is easily set up and can quickly be taken down and rolled up into a small parcel. To set up a teepee properly ten or a dozen straight slender poles are needed and these are often hard to find even in a dense forest but one can make shift with three poles set up as a tripod or even with one the latter being braced against a tree and its lower end jabbed into the ground teepees are not to be had of tent makers except to order an excellent form of tent for all-round service being warm well ventilated rainproof easy to set up, secure in a gale, and affording plenty of headroom for its size, is the one here illustrated. It is the favourite tent of that veteran canoeist, Mr Perry D. Fraser, whose book on Canoeing, Cruising and Camping is the most practical manual of its kind that has been published. The cuts and details here given are supplied by Mr Fraser, partly in a personal letter and partly from an article by him in Shooting and Fishing. The material is dark brown 10 ounce duck. The tent is octagon in form, 8.5 feet in diameter and and 8.5 feet high. Each width of duck measures 38 inches. The length of each breadth, inclusive of the end left below hem for sod cloth, is 10 feet 2 inches. The door is 5 feet 6 inches, actual length along goods. The awning is 5 feet 8 inches long. It fastens down with large brass hooks and eyes at sides and bottom. The door is about 14 inches wide at top and about 20 inches at bottom. The awning is usually left up and a flap of mosquito bar closes the opening. The awning has two thin jointed poles and cord guys. In the rear of the tent is a window 8 inches square filled with bobbinet giving a good circulation of air. Its flap is thirteen inches by fourteen inches by eighteen inches with grommets in outer corners to hold stick so that it can be stretched for air and to keep out rain. The sod cloth is six inches wide. The floor cloth lies over the sod cloth, making the tent impervious to cold drafts, dampness, and insects. The octagonal floor cloth fastens to the sides of the tent with grommets and small wooden buttons so that it can be left with tent when folded or taken out at will. It is slit from front to pole so that the forward edges can be turned back when one comes into the tent with muddy feet. The sill under the door is five inches high. Its rationale is this it keeps the bottom of the tent in what is practically one piece so that when the latter is stretched taut every peg finds its proper place without any measuring and the tent sets true besides in conjunction with the sod cloth and floor cloth it makes the bottom of the tent proof against cold and insects at the very point where other tents are weak namely at the door 12-inch meat skewers are used for pegs, and it will be noticed that the tent only requires eight of them. This tent folds into a parcel about 24 inches by 12 inches by 3 inches, and weighs about 32 pounds, with poles and pegs. Mr Fraser says, This is my favourite tent for canoeing trips early in the spring and late in the fall, when a snug, water-and-windproof tent is desirable. It would be too heavy for inland trips where it would have to be carried, but if made of waterproof muslin or six-ounce duck, it would be ideal for light trips. I had the second one of this type that was made. It was designed by J.E.G. Yolden of New York, but his tent was too small and I had mine made wider. A number of tents of this type are now used by canoeists and for all-round use they are grand tents. S. Hemondway & Sons, 54 South Street, New York, have the working drawings. I think the price without poles or pegs is $12, but it may be less. I have timed the owner of one of these tents while in the act of setting it. Three minutes were consumed in driving the eight steel pegs and hoisting the pole into position. Once set, let the wind blow as hard as it may. The owner need never fret, for it would be hard to trip this style of tent, its sides being so steep it will turn water as readily as if it were greased one may stand upright in it and there is room for one cot or for two beds on the ground in any tent with a ridge pole two screw eyes should be put in at opposite ends from which to suspend by cords a straight stick to hang clothes on wire clothes hangers and candle holders and metal lantern hangers and gun racks which fit on the upright poles of tents and wall pockets which are very convenient receptacles for odds and ends are supplied by camp outfitters the hangers are particularly useful in Sibley's miners or other one pole tents it pays to take such things folding tables stools and chairs and even folding bathtubs are made in large quantities for military and campers use They save time and trouble in fixing up a camp, but it is better to make one's own simple furniture on the spot, if anything like a hard trip is contemplated. There are two articles of ready-made furniture, however, that are well worth packing along if the party is not travelling very light indeed, and these are a rolling table top and a set of folding shelves. The table is made of pantisote, with pockets on the underside which are stiffened by thin wooden slats. The table is set up by driving a stake into the ground at each corner, connected by cross pieces on which the top rests, the latter being two foot by three foot when opened and weighing only three pounds. The shelves are made of canvas, similarly stiffened by slats, forming, when set up on four poles, a cupboard of three shelves two feet long, weighing three pounds. As boards are seldom obtainable in the wilderness, the tables and shelves may be worth the trouble of carrying them. A full-sized axe should be taken along whenever it is practicable to carry one. Its head need not weigh more than three and a half or four pounds. With this one tool, a good axeman can build anything that is required in the wilderness, and he can quickly fell and log up a tree large enough to keep a hot fire before his lean-to throughout the night. If an axe is bought ready handled, see that the helve is of young growth hickory, straight grained and free from knots. Sight along the back of the helve to see if it is straight in line with the eye of the axe, then turn it over and see if the edge of the axe ranges exactly in line with the center of the hilt, rear end of handle, as it should, and that the hilt is at right angles to the center of the eye. A good chopper is as critical about the heft and hang of his axe as a shooter is about the balance of his gun. If the handle is straight, score a a two-and-a-half-foot rule on it in inches. Get the axe ground by a careful workman. The store edge is not thin enough or keen enough. An axe lying around camp has a fatal attraction for men who do not know how to use it. Not that they will do much chopping with it, but somebody will pick it up, Make a few bungling whacks at a projecting root or to stick lying flat on the ground, drive the blade through into the earth and pebbles, and leave the edge nicked, so that it will take an hour's hard work to put it in decent order again. And the fellow who does this is the one who should not sharpen an axe to save his life. It never seems to occur to him that an axe is of no use unless its edge is kept keen, or that the best way to ruin it is to strike it into the ground, or that a chopping block will prevent that. You may loan your last dollar to a friend, but never loan him your axe, unless you are certain that he knows how to use it. A file should be taken along, its chief use being to sharpen the axe when you are far from grindstones. When going into fixed camp, It is well to take along a small hand saw, which is very useful in making camp furniture. Make up your mind that it will have to be thrown away when you leave for home, because someone will surely use it in sawing meat bones. It may be well to take a cross-cut saw for the special benefit of those who are rather proud of the fact that they do not know how to chop firewood. A spade may be taken for trenching and for excavating the oven, camp refrigerator, refuse pit, cache, and so forth. A wooden spade however or a sapling chopped to a wedge at one end and hardened in hot ashes will generally suffice a few small tools in a rolled holdall may be handy at times and an inch auger is often useful around a permanent camp nails will be needed in such a camp and if the ground is reached by wagon take with you some boards for making a table benches etc when traveling with horses take a hammer a few spare horseshoes and their nails some copper rivets washers and a set awls saddlers thread rawhide thongs and a good length of rope never venture into an arid region without one or two large canteens for carrying water an acetylene lantern is a good thing an ordinary bicycle lamp From which the clamp has been removed and a wire bale attached to the top is especially good for coon hunting night fishing and picking up frogs at night carbide is much easier to carry than kerosene which if so much as a drop escapes anywhere near your provisions will taint them if oil is preferred though a good way to carry it is in quart cans such as are made for heavy oils leather dressings etc These have a stopper which unscrews and exposes the opening of a small spout within. A folding pocket lantern for candles is best when one is in light marching order, but let it be of brass. Those made of tin or aluminium are much too frail. Candles, for the amount of light they give, are much bulkier than carbide. A coil of 15 or 20 yards of half-inch rope is a good thing to have around a permanent camp. It will be useful should you find a bee tree and elect to rob the bees, or as an aid in reaching the nests of hawks, etc. If you have a dog with you, take along a few yards of strong wire, this to be strong between two trees as a trolley wire to which to chain him. When camping in a canebrake country, have a huntsman's horn in the outfit. Leave it with the camp keeper, who will blow it every evening about an hour before supper. The sound of a horn carries far, and its message is unmistakable. It is a dulcet note to one who is bewildered in a thick wood or brake. End of chapter 4